Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Well, I hope you found this laying of candles um, as meaningful as, as I did. I'll tell you in a moment who I'm thinking of. But I want to read to you as we begin this series on the problem of pain and suffering. From the Evening News of India, Tuesday, October 12, some years ago. All 89 passengers and six crew members were killed when an Indian Airlines plane bound for Madras crashed within minutes of takeoff at Santa Cruz Airport at 1.40 a.m. today. The plane was only some three minutes airborne when its pilot noticed a fire in one of the engines. He was reported to have told air traffic control of the fire and said, I'm coming back. Eyewitnesses, including friends and relatives who had come to see the passengers off, saw the plane burning in the night sky like a red ball before it crashed. The passengers had no chance. Some of you know that I remember that night with crystal clarity, as if branded onto my memory. My brothers and I, watching the TV, we got a phone call, and Mum received the news that she'd been dreading ever since she'd heard the radio news earlier in the day, the news that Dad was on that plane, and he was gone. Although I remember that day with uh, absolute clarity, the days and weeks afterwards, a complete blank, actually. But my mum uh, tells me that I approached her a couple of days after the accident and as a nine-year-old boy asked her, Mum, why did God let Dad's plane crash? The interesting thing about this is that ours was not a religious home. I had never been inside a church, not once to Sunday school. We never talked about God or said grace at the table. And yet, even a nine-year-old boy, without religion, knows the right question to ask. Why God? Now, I'm sharing this with you not um, to gain your sympathy as I begin a difficult sermon series, and not even to establish my right to speak on the topic. Because I am well aware that some people sitting in this building bear deeper wounds than I do, much. I'm sharing this with you because I want to illustrate the universality of this question. Even an irreligious nine-year-old boy, when confronted with this kind of event, knows the right question. Why? And not just why, why God? Why? It's a question that thousands of people ask every day, every time a marriage breaks down, every time a business goes bust, every time a child gets cancer. The question goes up, and so it should. 
Why? As we begin this series with a very introductory talk, I want to concede the, the sheer force of this question. Um, I don't want you to think as we go in through these three weeks that I've got it all sorted out. Um, despite the you know, rhetorical confidence I will probably ooze over the next three weeks, uh, I am not untroubled by this, even still. Even as a professional Christian, I still find myself, from time to time, saying, God, why? It's not exactly the same question I asked at nine, nor the same question I asked at 18 or 20, but it's still there. You know, I just think of the last few weeks. I think of what the Daniel Morecambe parents have gone through with the discovery of his remains. Watching that, I did find myself saying, why God? Think of the three ABC men killed in the chopper accident. Think of the large-scale tragedy going on in the Horn of Africa. I find myself still saying, why? And I'll be honest with you, um, no matter how confident I seem over these coming weeks in the biblical perspective, I think I cling to the biblical perspective not because I think it has a knockdown answer to this question, but because I think it's, it's the only option that isn't completely knocked out. I think it's the last one standing is probably the best way to put it, which may not sound very encouraging, uh, but it's how I feel about it. It's a little bit like I'm in a great torrent and feeling overwhelmed by the, by the waves and I hear a voice in the distance on the far uh, bank that says, swim against the tide. And I just, it doesn't make sense. And another one over the other side says, swim with the tide. That doesn't make sense. Someone else down the way says, it's just a dream. Don't worry, you'll wake up. And then a last person is in the torrent with me. And they say, here, hold my hand. And something in their voice makes this the least implausible option. And that's pretty much how I feel about the Christian response to suffering. It's the least implausible, the least incoherent. When you look at all the possible understandings of suffering, I'm going with this one. And actually, the idea of someone in the torrent with me who sounds trustworthy actually is not a bad analogy for how I feel about the biblical perspective on suffering. But my point is, I think it's the last one standing. And I'm sorry if, you know, you came here looking for really clear answers. Uh, this is not what you're going to get from me. What you're going to get is, I hope, the least implausible answer. And actually, when you think of how serious this problem is, uh, least implausible will do just fine. So let me spend some moments unpacking what seemed to me the major alternatives. If not the biblical perspective on suffering, then what? What are we left with? Now, I don't intend to critique these other perspectives. I just want to lay them out in order to illustrate how profoundly different I think the biblical perspective is. The first is Hinduism, the oldest of the world's religions, which has a comprehensive 
answer to the problem of pain. Within Hinduism, all events that occur in your life are divinely sanctioned balance for your deeds. And because Hinduism teaches reincarnation, that you've had multiple lives, it may not be this life that you reap your karma. It may be in a future life. Or as you suffer in this life, it may not be because of the wrongs of this life. It may be the wrongs of a previous life, but in this one, you reap the karma. Because karma is the universal balancing principle that matches your deeds with events. And the most important philosophical texts in Hinduism are the Upanishads, which put it clearly. As a man acts, as he behaves, so does he become. Whatever deeds he does on earth, their rewards he reaps. From that other world, he comes back here to the world of deed and work. For example, a Hindu family in, say, Uttar Pradesh today, who has just lost a child, if they are a sincere Orthodox Hindu family, they sincerely believe in that moment they are reaping karma for their deeds of either this life or a previous life. That is how it is interpreted. A businessman walking down the streets of Mumbai today who sees a beggar, even though the businessman may well be moved to assist the beggar, if he is an orthodox Hindu, he knows that, that what he's seeing is not an inversion of the Almighty's desire, but in fact a divinely sanctioned balancing mechanism. This beggar is reaping the reward for his deeds. Within Hinduism, therefore, there is a hugely comprehensive answer to all of your suffering. Everything, no matter how painful and deep, is balancing out your deeds. Perhaps more than any other religion, Buddhism is a response to suffering. In fact, you may not know that the center of Buddhism is a path to end the pain. Uh, the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, was a prince, 500 BC, who uh, lived in great luxury, of course. He had a palace for each season of the year. He had dancing and singing girls. He had all the luxurious foods. And uh, one day as a young man, he ventured outside the palace walls. And the Buddhist scriptures tell us uh, that he saw what they call uh, the great signs. Outside the walls, he discovered sickness, a terribly ill person. And then he saw an elderly person all hunched over and frail. And then he saw a corpse. And he was so shocked by this, he went back to the palace, left his young wife, his newborn child, and decided to wander the Ganges region until he understood the reason for suffering. And until he understood how to live in a world of suffering with absolute equilibrium, how to cope. For seven years, he wandered the Ganges and he tried all the various techniques of the Hindu masters and found them all to fail, according to the Buddhist texts. And he sat under a Bodhi tree one day in May and just determined not to get up from his meditative stance until he understood pain. 
day after day, no food, just contemplation, concentration. He eventually had his enlightenment and became a Bodhi, the Buddha. And in his enlightenment, he saw what he thought was the solution to suffering, its cause and its solution. He said, all suffering is the result of your attachments to the things of this world, whether the relationships you have in your life or, or clothes or food, that all suffering can be explained as the result of attachments. The second noble truth, hear it from the Buddha's own words from his first sermon. The noble truth of the origin of suffering is this. It is this desire which produces rebirth accompanied by passionate greed and finding fresh delight now here and now there, namely desire for sense pleasure, desire for existence, and desire for non-existence. His logic was, the pain a child feels at losing a father is actually not caused by the event of losing a father. It's caused by the child's attachment to the father. Can you see the logic? It's pretty inescapable. The pain a beggar feels is not actually caused by the circumstances of poverty. It's caused by the beggar's attachment to a better life, attachment to comfort. And if a child can detach from a father's love, and if a beggar can detach from the desire for a better life, suffering evaporates. Can you see the logic? The third noble truth of Buddhism, of the four noble truths, is precisely this. The noble truth of the cessation of suffering is this. It is the complete cessation of that very desire, giving it up, relinquishing it, liberating oneself from it, and detaching oneself from it. Now, I taught Buddhism at Macquarie Uni for three or four years. And I'll admit, as I admitted to my students, I am astonished at Buddha's relentless logic. It's hard to escape his logic, actually. But I think I would make a terrible Buddhist. I would make a terrible Buddhist. Because actually, I don't think I could give up my attachments. I think I would prefer painful memory to detached relationships. But there's no question that logic is powerful. Very different response is found in Islam. Within Islam, all events are said to be determined by an explicit decree of Allah. And so Muslims will freely talk about the finger of God, the finger of Allah in everything. When a plane falls from the sky, when a child contracts cancer, it is the finger of God. It is a decree. And the Quran puts it in no uncertain terms. Quran 57. Not a, desire not a disaster befalls in the earth or in yourselves, but is in a book before we create it. That for Allah is an easy matter. The reason Allah has written this in a book before it happens, has decreed it, is... is unknowable, and actually, Muslims will tell you, unquestionable. Which sounds harsh to Western ears, but not to a Muslim framework. 
It's one of the interesting things about the difference between a Western and an Islamic view of, of God. Whether you are Christian or not, you have inherited a view of God that is, that is both almighty and majestic, just as the Islamic vision of God, but at the same time, a view of God that is moderated by the pain and suffering of Jesus. So that Westerners think of God as, as both almighty and in some way humble, tender, passionate, broken. That is, that is a, an inheritance from Christianity. But within Islam, this duality in God is completely rejected. And incidentally, the Quran, for this very reason, rejects the idea that Jesus died on a cross. Because a prophet could not die such a terrible death. And so to a Muslim, their view is anything but harsh. They actually believe that you will find solace the more profoundly you submit to the absolute majesty of Allah. In fact, Islam means submission. Muslim means one who submits. That is where you find your meaning. Submitting to the absolute decrees of God. Even if you don't know what his reasons are, it doesn't matter. You submit to him. Now, I must say, I totally get this. And, and I, I reckon I could be a Muslim. If I weren't so convinced about the Jesus story, I reckon I could easily be a Muslim. Different from all of these religious perspectives is the final non-Christian perspective on suffering, atheism. For the atheist, of course, suffering is not the result of karma or desire or the finger of God but sheer natural forces, the random intersection of time and space. And perhaps the most famous exponent of this view of the world is the great Richard Dawkins from Oxford University, who is no mental slouch and is relentless in his own pursuit of atheism. And in the London Telegraph, he wrote these words. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and we won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. In other words, for the atheist, the question why is just overruled, because there is no rhyme or reason in the universe. And more than that, there's no one to put your question to, so you're just shouting into the air. Some atheists go even further and suggest that the the pain and suffering of the world is evidence against God's existence. To his credit, Richard Dawkins doesn't go down this line. But some atheists do argue in a logical syllogism that I've put on the screen. You sometimes hear people say this, premise one, an all-powerful God could end suffering. Premise two, an all-loving God would end suffering. Conclusion, since suffering exists, an all-powerful, all-loving God does not exist. 
Now, you may not have heard it put as formally as that. Um, it is wheeled out in first-year philosophy lectures, uh, but often we hear it just more intuitively. I, I remember Corne uh, from our service, uh, who's a Qantas pilot, telling me some years ago that uh, he, he was you know, flying one beautiful night and he, they could see the incredible stars out at 30,000 feet in the dark. And he turned to his first officer and he said, uh, hard to believe there's not a God, hey? Just trying his luck. And the first officer said, not when you've been to Vietnam and seen what I've seen, mate. He quickly dropped the topic and went back to flying a plane or something. That's how it's often presented. Oh, there's too much suffering for me to believe in God. But that's the actual logic, formally. But here's the thing. Even atheist philosophers now agree that the proof fails. This was dealt with centuries ago, but it's still dealt with in technical philosophical articles. The problem with this syllogism is not premise one, I guess we can all agree that an all-powerful God could end suffering. The problem is with premise two. An all-loving God would end suffering. And even atheist philosophers point out that we don't know that. How do we know that an all-loving God doesn't have good reasons for allowing suffering to continue? And you may say, okay, so what are the reasons? But even atheist logicians will point out, actually, we don't even need to know the good reasons in order to see the weakness of premise two. We just need to see that it is in principle possible for an almighty God to have good reasons for allowing suffering to continue. And if that's a possibility, then the syllogism fails. In other words, you cannot use suffering as a formal proof against the existence of God until you can first prove that an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God doesn't have good reasons for allowing suffering to continue. And because we can't demonstrate that as a formal proof, it fails. Which doesn't for a second resolve the problem of pain. Don't mishear me. In fact, I wouldn't even raise this if it weren't so commonly raised by pop atheists to me. I, I am well aware that actually this problem we're dealing with over the next few weeks isn't really a problem of intellect and logic. It's a problem of our existence. And my main point in raising the atheist perspective is not the philosophical one, but it's what you might call the existential one. For atheists, there is no rhyme or reason. There is just blind, pitiless indifference. And I guess if we were trying to put a positive spin on it, the atheist would say, it's just realistic. That's, that's its attraction. There is no God, so it's just realistic. And I have had atheists say to me, you know, I'd rather stare into the abyss than imagine fairy tales. I get that. I just think there are very good reasons for not being an atheist. The thing I want to underline, though, is the logical extension of atheism. It means that all of this 
is meaningless. There's no rhyme, no reason. Blind, pitiless indifference. I know what this candle represents. I don't know what your candle represents. But I do know atheism offers nothing in our suffering. Well, these are the alternatives. Is suffering simply the result of karma? Are you reaping what you actually deserve? Is suffering simply born of desire? And the way to escape it is to give up attachments to the things you love. Is it all just the decree of God that I cannot question? Or are we really staring into an abyss where there is no God? Or is there another option? And this is why I'm saying I don't cling to the biblical perspective because I think it has a knockdown argument. I cling to it because I think it's the only one that's knocked, knocked out. It's the last one standing. Now, I'll be unpacking the details of what the Bible says concerning suffering in the next two weeks. For the remainder of my time, I just want to give you one introductory thought that I think is unique to the biblical perspective, actually. Just one thought. One of the truly striking things about the biblical perspective is that it fully endorses your right to come to God with all of your passions and doubts and questions and frustrations and anger and ask the question. In other words, the Bible does not ask you to detach. It doesn't ask you simply to be quiet before the decree of a majestic God. It invites you to come and ask the question. Think of the passage Alison just read us, the opening lines of Psalm 22 written centuries before Christ. Listen to the impassioned words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. If, if I were a Hindu, these words would be proof I haven't understood karma. Because even the gods are subject to karma. If I were a Buddhist, this would be proof I was not enlightened, that I was still attached to my relationships and the things of the world. And if I were a Muslim, this borders on blasphemy. And of course, if I were an atheist, it's nonsensical. There, there, there is no why, and there's no one to put a why to. But the Bible adopts a very different approach to the problem of pain. It invites you to say stuff like that. And I reckon um, even some long-term Christians feel uncomfortable about this. Some long-term Christians I've met think that the only sentiment you're allowed to express if you're going through really hard times is the more famous sentiment in the next psalm. You know the Psalm 23? 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I have, I have met Christians in the face of terrible suffering and they think that's all they've got permission to say. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But Psalm 22 is in the Bible immediately before Psalm 23, incidentally, to remind us that sometimes the cry, my God, why, is just as much an expression of faith as the affirmation, the Lord is my shepherd. And Psalm 22 is by no means unique. I'm not just picking on a psalm that happens to suit my purposes. You know, um, there are 150 psalms in the biblical book of Psalms, and scholars who have too much time on their hands actually categorize them all. They, they invent all these sort of literary genre for the various psalms. And you know, there's a whole genre of technical genre of psalms called psalms of complaint. It is a quarter of the psalms. One quarter of the psalms in the 150 psalms of the book of Psalms are categorized as psalms of complaint which should overwhelmingly tell you that a biblical God doesn't shut down your question, doesn't ask you to be detached. He says, this is okay. This sentiment is fine. I don't advise getting theology from rock stars, but there's one rock star where it's permissible. No surprise. Bono was in, invited to write an essay on a new edition of the Psalms. And in his essay, he, he, just, he, he got right to the heart of the book of Psalms when he described the Psalms as the original blues music. And he just said this, that's what a lot of the Psalms feel like to me, the blues, man shouting at God, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He goes for Psalm 22. Now, there's a sense in which <clears throat> I want to qualify Bono's remark, with all due respect. <laughs> and there's a sense in which I want to go further than Bono. I want to qualify his comment by saying, it is possible to ask inappropriate questions of God. It is possible. See, when questions come out of hurt and pain and doubt and frustration, of course, that's fine. But when questions about this stuff come out of arrogance and avoidance strategies, God is no fool. These sorts of questions are not invited. In fact, there's another biblical book that deals with suffering as much as the book of Psalms does. And it takes a very different tack, actually. The book of Job, chapter 40, responds to Job's arrogance. Job protests his righteousness and says that God himself is to blame. God is unjust. And in this context of arrogant questioning, we get these quite potent words from God. Job 40. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? that him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord after chapters and chapters of arrogance. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? 
I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? This is not contradicting the truth of Psalm 22, but it is saying it is possible to ask inappropriate questions from an inappropriate heart. If, if you're coming here today with doubt and frustration and even anger and, and, and desperation, God is ready to listen to you. God wants you to come to him and say why. But if you come with, I think I can disprove God by this whole topic, um, God better have a good answer for me, then I think it's different. And we all, those of us who are parents, we all love it when our kids come to us with questions of, of hurt and frustration and confusion and even anger. But when they come with questions that are mere avoidance strategies, that are born of arrogance, we, we don't like those questions. So I want to qualify Bono by saying, you know what? There is an inappropriate question. But then again, I want to go further than Bono. Because I don't think the Psalms are simply man shouting at God. I think it is God inviting you to shout at him. The Psalms are not just human literature. They are word of God. They are there because God wants to give voice to your own suffering. He wants you to come and say, my God, why? And if we needed any more proof of this, think of the final words of Jesus on the cross. At the moment of his deepest physical agony, having been betrayed by his closest friends, having been um, subject to incredible injustice on the cross, he reaches for the words of Psalm 22. We read in Mark 15, 34, and at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The question is permitted. The God of the Bible bids us to approach him with our pain, with our doubts and fears and frustrations. Because it's in this mode of personal engagement with God, man shouting at God, to use Bono's words, that we are in a place to hear God's reply. That's what I want to say tonight. I'll be unpacking what that reply is over the next couple of weeks, but all I want to highlight today is my nine-year-old question, my 43, 44-year-old question, your question, God invites it. I think we'll find some answers. You won't find you simply have to submit to the decrees of God. You won't find that you have to detach from love, from passion. You'll find that there is more than blind, pitiless indifference. The Bible does offer some answers great hope and deep comfort in the present. But the first step is your personal approach to God.
Come to him with all that you are. And then listen to him.